Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. For us, we are back to the questions that Jesus asked. Proper title is Questions Jesus Asked and You Should Answer. And the reason we should answer them is because they're very good questions. Uh, you may remember that Jesus asked 295 questions by somebody's count, not mine, but somebody counted them, and said he asked 295 questions in the pages of the Gospels. And uh, he doesn't ask questions for the same reason we ask questions. He didn't ask questions because he couldn't get the information any other way. That's not why he asked. He didn't ask questions to get to know you, like an icebreaker type of thing. But he used the questions, as we've been saying, like a very skilled surgeon would use the sharpest of scalpels. He uses questions to peel away the layers in our life so that we can be healed. That's what he does with his questions. So this is the 14th question that you and I have looked at in the last little while, but actually it's not. I, uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks, Becky and Prentice and I are going to take a trip to Washington, D.C. We have some relatives that live out that way. That'll be nice, but I really want to see D.C. I've only been there one other time. Uh, Beck has been there a bunch of times, but I've only been once. And that's been some time ago, and, and and I want to see it again. Because you know how it is when you visit a place, and then when you visit the second time, sometimes it's even better. It's even better. It's kind of like when you watch a good movie. The second time's even better because you're looking for certain things, but you're also looking for things that you missed. And so I'm excited to revisit Washington, D.C. Because going back sometimes is more enriching than going the first time. It's like when you go home again. And you're drawn back by the familiar, but there's also a chance that you will see something brand new. And so I'm looking forward to that. Well, all that to say that the question that Jesus will ask us today, we have already looked at. Several weeks ago, we looked at this very same question. You may want to turn to Matthew 16, and as you do, you'll say, aha, I remember, I remember. Yeah, we've already looked at this question, but I'm feeling a sense of urgency to revisit it today. But let me throw out a little bit of a warning, especially if you weren't here the first time we looked at it. We, to look at this question and to hear him ask it, we have got to go back to a place that's described as the gates of hell. This question will be asked as he's standing outside the city of Caesarea Philippi, a city originally named Panaeus, after one of the many Greek gods. This particular Greek god was the god of hell, Panaeus. They had renamed the city, but they had kept the traditions. In the side of the cliff right outside the city that the city was actually built against, where Jesus undoubtedly was standing and looking up as he begins to talk about this and ask this most important question, 
It is a, a cliffside that is pockmarked with caves and openings, some of them naturally made, some man-made. And they're carved into the face of that cave, niches, little shelves, little shrines where a statue of a pagan god or goddess, a demonic figure can be placed, and some of them were very demonic. But at the base of the, op- of the, of the cliff, there is a great opening, a huge cave, easily Anyone could walk into it. It's a big gaping hole that goes down, 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 down. And these people believe that it led to the river Styx, the river of death. And in fact, they said this is the very gate of hell. This opening in this cliff outside Caesarea Philippi, they called the gate of hell. So that's where Jesus finds himself as he begins to ask a question. The question will lead to another question that will lead to a monumental confession on the part of his followers that are there. He will ask his his 12 apostles a follow-up question. The follow-up question is, who do you say I am? And they will say, You are the Christ, that's what we say. You are the anointed one. You are as anointed as the great King David, and maybe greater for all you we know. You are the Messiah. The Greek word for Messiah is Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the king that we've been looking for. That's who we say you are. And so it is a monumental confession that will come out of this question and answer session. It's a milestone in their progress that they will declare him to be the Messiah, the Christ. We say you are the Christ. And it will be such a strong declaration of their faith that there is no backing off this one. No walking it back, as the politicians say when they misspeak. There will be no walking this one back. You are the Christ. They will live and die by that. And that's made here, Caesarea Philippi at the very gates of hell. This is interesting because Jesus will go on to say, and it's outside of what we want to do with it today, but he will say, what you have said about me, that I am the Christ, is indestructible. And not even the gates of hell can prevail against that confession. And that everywhere somebody says, you are the Christ, that's where I will build my church. And my church will be indestructible. Not even the gates of hell can prevail. Interesting that he says it in front of the gates of hell. Almost like a taunt to the enemy, isn't it? Well, take a look in Matthew 16. The story begins at verse 13. And he's come into this district, he's in the area, and he asks the disciples, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who am I? Who do they say that I am? Now, that's not the most important question he will put to them. The most important question he will put to them is, who do you say that I am? He's always interested in what you say as opposed to what the crowd says. But now he wants to know, opinion poll question, who do people say that I am? And so his apostles, they have an ear to the people, and they pipe up and they say, well, some people say, Jesus, that you are John the Baptist. Now that opinion of him might have originated pretty high up the food chain with King Herod. King Herod was the puppet king over all of Israel at that point. 
He was kind of a screw-loose character, immoral in a number of different ways, insecure in all ways, to the point that he had his own children murdered so they would not succeed him on the throne, even though it wasn't much of a throne. But that idea that Jesus is John the Baptist might have originated with wicked King Herod because he had had run-ins with John the Baptist, Herod had. In fact, he had removed John's head from his shoulders because John irritated him. John was a forceful character. He, he, he was a strong character. So as people look at Jesus, they see him kind of as a John the Baptist. Maybe that's who he is because John was so forceful. He was a convicting character who spoke his mind. At one point, he will say in an unsparing reference to the religious leaders of the day, you people are a brood of vipers. In other words, you're the offspring of the worst kind of poisonous snake. That's who you are. He was forceful and he was convicting. But he was also prophetic, John was. John will say at one point in his career, before Jesus comes on the scene, he will say, let me tell you something. I baptize you with water. I, John, baptize you people with water. But there's one coming after me, and he's prophesying Christ. There's one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God will be the atmosphere you live in. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. He was prophetic in that. There's something future, he's saying. That, that, that is coming, that I can't really explain, but you need to watch for it. And when they said, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist, maybe they were thinking about John because John spoke truth to power. The fatal run-in that he had with King Herod over King Herod's lustful ways and wife-stealing would cost him his head, but he spoke truth to power. Now, when these people said, you are John the Baptist, about Jesus, who's now deceased, you're a resurrected John the Baptist, well, we look at that and we say how wrong they were, and we, we giggle at how wrong they were, John the Baptist. Are you kidding me? How, how, man, how could you be so wrong to think and confuse Jesus with John the Baptist? And we smile at that, but let me suggest that they were right. John used the exact same words that Jesus would later on use. You brood of vipers. And later on, Jesus would use that exact phrase. You pack, you offspring of poisonous snakes. He would use that exact same phrase. He would lift it wholesale from John. And he would say it to the same group of people, the religious leaders. The only group that either of them, John or Jesus, ever had harsh words for was the obnoxiously religious and he would use exactly the same phrase. And who can forget the way Jesus would clear out the temple, not once, but twice, so that it was cleansed. And, and like John, Jesus was known to be forceful. He will baptize with Holy Spirit and fire, says John. When Jesus is resurrected, the cross behind him, he's resurrected now. He's bloodless, but he's alive and real, and he's in front of them. He will say to them, now wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will receive power. 
So very much like John, he was forceful. And after a 10-day wait, the Holy Spirit does exactly what Jesus prophesied he would. He comes accompanied by fire. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus. And like John, Jesus is very prophetic. He's forceful and he's prophetic. John lost his head. And Jesus would lose his life. And, 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 and he would lose more than that. He would be torn from the Father for speaking truth to the same arrogant, self-absorbed leaders that John spoke to and lost his head over. So it's easy to see why the people, when they're asked, who do you think Jesus is? It's easy to see why they thought John was back somehow in the person of his own cousin Jesus. We smile at how wrong they got it, but I'm not sure they got it wrong. He was very John the Baptist-like, wasn't he? They were not wrong in that, but neither were they correct. Well, what do some other people say? Well, some other people say you're Elijah. That's what some said. And I can see how they said that. Elijah is the greatest of the Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament. And when he spoke, he really didn't speak. He would thunder with what he had to say. And he demanded attention because he was speaking from God. And he called out, Elijah did in his day, and he challenged the forces of evil on Mount Carmel. He called them all out. It was 850 to 1, and he beat them back and defeated them in a powerful display of God's power. Jesus did similar things. He re repeatedly called out the ugliest and the darkest of demons. He called out the ugliest and, and most ruthless of tormentors. And he never lost once. Not once did Jesus ever lose in his contest with Satan. And, and at times he would command them to go into pigs instead of the human beings that God had made. And when Jesus encountered demonic forces, he treated them like trespassers of the soul. You don't belong here. And he banished them into a darkness so deep that when they just would think about it, they would shudder, the devils would. They would shudder in terror just to think about where he was sending them. It was a darkness that they hated and they feared and they deserved. Well, Elijah could command the forces of nature he could, he could make it stop raining for years at a time and make it start raining. He had God's ear that way, Elijah. He could command the forces of nature, and so could Jesus. Storms would stop simply because he said, stop. They would stop because he said so. And, and back to Elijah, even death was no barrier to Elijah's prayers. But think of this, every single funeral that Jesus Christ ever attended, he disrupted by raising the corpse. It makes me wonder what they did with the potato salad, because the funeral was over. So were they wrong in saying Jesus is Elijah? Not wrong, but not entirely right either. Now there were still others the apostles reported to Jesus, who do people say that I am? Well, there's some still others. I wonder who those still others were. That's what the word calls them, still others. They had names. 
And those people, some of them said, he's Jeremiah. Jesus, you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Jesus is known as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, isn't he? At grave sites, he would weep. Some of you here know what that's like. He would weep at grave sites. The book of Hebrews says about Jesus that during his time on earth, he offered up prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears. Your King James Bible says with strong crying. That's how Jesus cried. Jeremiah wept because nobody listened to his warnings. Nobody. Jeremiah went his entire career and had no converts. None. And that caused Jeremiah to weep. But Jesus wept because all the people that he saw, he said, you're like lost, vulnerable sheep. And you're subject to injury in your soul and in your body. And you're liable to be victimized as a lost sheep by a treacherous and determined enemy who comes only to kill and steal and destroy. He's talking about Satan. When Jesus would see people, he would weep. Because that's what he was thinking. Jeremiah wept because he couldn't get out of his calling. It was a burden to him to have to tell this story and to warn people that refused to listen and that made fun of him. And you're the problem, Jeremiah, not us. And that was such a burden to Jeremiah that at one point he said, God, let let me get out from under my calling. I don't want to do this anymore. Then he he levels with us and he tells us, but when I say I will speak no more in his name, the message is like a fire shut up in my bones and I can't keep quiet. Jesus cried in the garden the last night for the cup to pass. Let this cup pass from me, knowing that if he did... If the cup did pass, that all of humanity would be forever in darkness and subject to a disease that destroys everything beautiful and everything good. So even as it comes out of his lips, Father, let this cup pass, he knew that it would not pass from him. Jeremiah cried and cried and cried. But Jeremiah cried nothing like the wail that would come from the cross. That that was a different kind of cry. That was a searing cry that could never, ever be soothed, and it never has been. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was alone, horribly alone. And the only thing that Jesus on the cross had for company, no longer the Father's company, the only thing he had for company was the filthiest, nastiest, heaviest parts of my life. That's what he had for company. So they were right. He's Jeremiah. He weeps. They were almost right. They were not wrong, but neither were they correct. And then some others said, who is Jesus? And others said, he's one of the prophets. One of the unnamed prophets. 
In your Old Testament, there are four major prophets, and there are 12 minor prophets, but there's a whole bunch of others that never wrote anything. Nathan and Ezra, and on and on the list goes. So there's a plenty of prophets that they could have been referring to. He's like one of the prophets. Like whom, for instance? Like Daniel? What was Daniel? Daniel was a seer. Daniel could see things that other people could not see. That was his gift. Jesus could see things that other people couldn't see. At one point it says he knew what was in people. He knows what's in Greek word anthropoi, men and women. He knows what's in us. We can't kid him. We can't fool him. He knows what's in us. He's like Daniel that way. He can see things. Or, or maybe, maybe he's like Hosea. Maybe that's what they were thinking of. Hosea is one who has been horribly wronged and cheated by those closest to him and, and taken advantage of. And he's got every single right in the world to walk away from the relationship that has gone sour. And yet, he never gives up, Hosea. He never gives up believing that love will somehow make everything right. Maybe he's like Hosea. What about Amos? Maybe somebody in that crowd was thinking, Jesus is Amos. You look at that prophecy of Amos. Pay attention to the fourth chapter. Because in chapter 4 of Amos' prophecy, it is like a dull, repetitious thud that will not stop banging the inside of your brain. Because over and over again, the Lord cites what He has done in the way of blessing and helping and meeting and providing. And He's given them His very best, yet over and over again, that repetitious thud comes back. Yet you have not returned to Me. I did this, yet you have not returned to Me. And I did that, yet you have not returned to Me. Our day is no different than Amos' day, I think. Because back then and today, people gladly flock to celebrities and powerful people and good-looking people and interesting people and accomplished people and connected people. And they honor God with cheap words. But by actions, they refuse to return to Him. No different. You know what I've decided, just for me? After paying attention to people, I'm, I'm fond of saying because it's true, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. But I have paid attention. And after paying attention to people in the church for a number of years, all kinds of people in the body of Christ, in the church, I'm not talking about the world now, I'm not talking about people outside of Christ. I'm not talking about people that don't have anything to do with God. I'm not talking about sec secular people because secular people's sex lives and behavior, that doesn't interest me or surprise me what they do. And I have nothing whatever to say about whatever they want to do or believe. But I'm talking about people whom Christ has rescued and healed and blessed and fixed, among many of those people, 
It seems to me that Jesus is the most neglected, famous person in history. He's certainly the most avoided, even by those who claim to love him. So maybe, maybe Jesus is Amos. One more. Maybe he's one of the prophets. Maybe he's Nahum. That's one of the minor prophets. They're called minor prophets not because they aren't important or their message isn't as important or because they're under 16. They're called minor prophets because they're short. And in his short little prophecy, Nahum says something really amazing. He talks about one that he says will smash what he calls the evil counselor. Guess who that is? He's talking about one who will smash the evil counselor. And Jesus is one who smashes the evil counselor and could say the words that Nahum puts in the mouth of the smasher, I will break the yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. Just last week we talked about that very side of Jesus. That sounds very much like Jesus Christ who says, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. He sets us free, doesn't he? So maybe he's like Nahum. Maybe. Well, at the end of it all, all of that is what they said. He's Jeremiah, he's Elijah, one of the others. And they were none of them wrong in their opinions, but they weren't really correct either. They were all right. They were all right. But then they made an error that's been made all the time, and it's made even now. I've told you before, and you knew it even before I talked about it, about the, the several blind men that were inspecting an elephant. They'd never encountered an elephant. They'd never heard of an elephant. But they began to feel around on the elephant to try and figure out what is an elephant. And one guy grabs hold of the trunk and he says, well, I'll tell you what an elephant is. It's a big snake. That's what an elephant is. Another guy grabs hold of the ear and he says, no, an elephant, an elephant is a great big bed sheet. That's what an elephant is. Another guy grabs the tail. An elephant is a rope. Another guy grabs a, a leg. An elephant is a tree with a big trunk. Well, they were all sort of right, weren't they? But collectively, they were wrong. And these people were like that too. He is like John the Baptist. And then they stopped looking. They didn't look any further. They were right as far as they went. He is Elijah. But then they stopped looking at him. He's like Jeremiah, and that's good enough for me. And they stopped. They become familiar with something about Jesus and stopped. And there are a lot of people that do that now. They grow only so much in Christ, and then they stop. They're satisfied. I only want so much. They learn only so much of His wonderful ways. And they know only one side of His many-sided personality. And they think they've learned it all. And they've got Jesus figured out, and they stop with that. That's why people drop away. I've got it. I don't need to learn anymore. 
There's no more to be seen here. Not knowing that there's so much more. They mature only so far when we do that. You can walk with Him only so far when you do that. You talk with Him only so much because you don't know Him really that well. And when you worship and when you pray and when you read the Word, it's with a timer on. Because I've already got all I need, see? But these people should have pushed on to discover that He is John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah and Amos and Daniel. And He is more than we can imagine, you see. He's the Savior of my soul. But He's also my brother. And He's my king. And He's my provider. And He's my healer. And He's my rock. And He's my redeemer who buys me back with His own blood. And He's the fortress that I can run into for safety. And He's my lion of the tribe of Judah. Don't mess with Him. But He's also the quiet Lamb of God. And He speaks in a still, small voice. You see, he comes to me in the night with that still, small voice to comfort, but he's also my judge, and he'll sure tell me when I'm wrong. He's my friend. He's compassionate, but he's jealous too, and he's kind, and he's loving, and he's merciful, and he's always honest, and he's always gentle. He can be trusted, and, 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 and I can be sharing with him my deepest confidences. And he keeps my secrets. He's joy. He's peace. He's altogether lovely. I've noticed, though, that his friends do pretty much the same as his enemies do. They put him in a box. We put him in a box and say, this is Jesus Christ when he's so much more. We can act as if we have him all figured out and we're not even close. We need to take years of our lives, years, just to walk around this marvelous Christ, just to gaze and gaze and sing like we sang a while ago. I stand amazed in his presence because he is amazing. However you answer that follow-up question. Who do people say that I am? But his follow-up was to the individual now, not the crowd. But who do you say that I am? And that is the most important question. Who do you say I am? And however you follow up and answer that most important question, but who do you say that I am, it will not likely, no matter how long your answer, be close to a complete one. Because you cannot put Jesus in a box. And there is no defining him. He is that beautiful and that marvelous and that amazing. There is so much more to Christ who is altogether lovely. There's an interesting story in Matthew 12. I only cite it not because I want you to go there now, but you may want to look at it later because you have read it and you have missed it. Matthew 12 tells the story of Jesus in a synagogue, in a place of study and prayer, a proper place, a religious place that's fairly crawling with religious critics. 
Jesus finds himself in that place in the company of a man who has an atrophied hand. His hand has ceased to function. Neurological reason, chemical reason, we don't know. But it no longer functions. And he presents himself to Jesus in that synagogue. And guess what he needs? He needs healing. But the religious professionals, they see a chance to score a point, and so they direct their question to Jesus. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It is the Sabbath. And these people are more enamored with the Sabbath. Their God is the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, Jesus? Because it's not lawful to do very much else. You pretty much got to stay home and mind your own business on the Sabbath. No working. Jesus' work is to heal. So is it lawful to do that work on the Sabbath, Jesus? We got him now. We got him now. We got chapter and verse on this one. We got him. And Jesus looks at the man with the atrophied hand and he tells him, step up. Whatever he's going to do, he wants to make sure every eye is focused. And then he asks the religious professionals with their clever question, let me ask you fellows, if you have a sheep that falls in a pit by accident, some fool left an uncovered hole and the sheep falls in it on the Sabbath day, you will pull him out, won't you? You won't wait for the next day. I've seen you do it. You'll pull him out. How much more does this man, a child of God, deserve to be pulled out of his problem on the Sabbath? And then he extends the, the hand of healing toward the broken hand and it's restored and made whole. Well, those professionals are incensed at that. They're probably incensed because they couldn't do anything even close to that. So there's jealousy. But he's made them the fool. They thought they had him. But he flipped the tables on him. And so they're incensed and they begin to plot from that point, we have got to murder this guy. There's blood in their eyes. We're going to destroy him. That's what we're going to do. So you know what Jesus did? See, here's the problem. When we read Scripture, we read a story and then we stop. Keep going. Because the story doesn't end with the healing of that man and the story doesn't end with the, the rage of those professionals. But Jesus steps outside the synagogue. And pretty much everybody in the synagogue empties out with him. And then, then people along the way who heard about what he just did in the face of those professionals, they think it's a lark. And so they begin to join the crowd too. And now there's a great multitude of people. And you know what Jesus does standing outside the synagogue? He heals every single one of those people on the Sabbath day. As if to say, in the most sanctified, heavenly way, to those religious professionals, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what he does. That's your Savior. That's a side of him too, you see. He is more multifaceted than the most beautiful of diamonds. And there's so much to know about him and see in him. 
There is so much that can captivate us if we will look. We will never get this Savior in a box. This is the crazy way Jesus loves, you see. It's lavish and it's sloppy. It's never unfair. And it's always more than generous, even with the crankiest among us, you see. That's our Savior. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.